The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. As we've seen, the Apostle Paul's second church planting trip began at the outset with a sharp disagreement with Barnabas over whether or not to bring John Mark on the trip. Paul wanted Barnabas to come, but not with John Mark. And Barnabas wanted John Mark to come, and if Paul wouldn't let him, he wasn't going to go. And so they were at an impasse, and uh, neither Paul nor Barnabas got what they wanted. Barnabas and John Mark set out for Cyprus, and Paul formed a new church planting team with Timothy, the young man with a Jewish mother and a Gentile father, along with Titus and Luke, who were Gentile believers. And, you know, Luke is the author of the book of Acts. So thus, Paul now boarded ship, having seen this vision of this Macedonian man calling them to come preach the gospel to Macedonia, and just to translate that, to Europe. To translate that again, to the Western world, it's a big deal. Having seen the vision, and with his new team, he boards ship toward Macedonia to plant the gospel there. And verse 11 reports it this way. This is Luke speaking. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city for some days. Do you get that? <laughs> just, we made a direct voyage. I read it's a, it's a nautical term, like straight away. <laughs> and it just stands in contrast to, remember before, like we tried to go this way and we tried to go that way, but the Spirit of Jesus prevented us and, and the Holy Spirit prevented us and and then the dream came, go this way. So in, in two days, they make this 150-mile trip in a boat because the, literally God's speed is on them. The wind is at their back. I think, <sighs> they must have felt that way. And you know what? It takes them five days to get back, just to put it into context. Two days there, just feeling a sense of God's confirmation or I would have felt the sense of God's confirmation that, got it, vision, new team, here we go. Let me pray. Father in heaven, you control the winds and the waves that blow this way and that way. And I pray that that your winds would be upon Bethlehem these days. Oh, how we want the winds of all your sanctifying grace and instruction and discipline and correction and humbling and repentance and faith that you have for us blow on us. We also want the power of the gospel on us to truly be a people 
reconciled in Christ and reconciling others to God through Christ Jesus. So, we pray, Lord Jesus, even the wind and the seas obey you. (laughs) Speak a word now to us from this text, and I pray that it would be a, a wind in our sails. It's a beautiful text. Uh, I thank you for it, and I pray that you'd help us all to climb into it and see what you have for us here. In Jesus' name, amen. My, my aim is this, is that we as a people would be reminded, uh, refreshed, reassured, that what we are as a church is a people who treasure Christ together above all else. You might say, how in the world do you see that here? (laughs) And let me tell you. Let me tell you. My outline is a simple list of the key figures in the passage. It's funny, I've had three weeks to think about this, and I have enjoyed it. I have just enjoyed this passage. Just thinking about these different people who make up the passage. So I've got a list of four key figures, three of which I believe are believers, and uh, we're just going to walk through it. And what's striking to me about these people, Lydia, the slave girl, push out the slave owners because they don't become believers, and the jailer, So three believers, people who become believers, I believe, in this passage. What's striking to me about these people is how different they are and how in the providence, in the gospel providence of God, God says, hmm, what kind of a core group would I pull together to plant the first church in the Western world? These are the people he picks. (laughs) I just love it. So, so four points. Uh, Lydia, the slave girl, the slave owners, and the jailer. We're just going to walk through the passage. So first, Lydia, verses 13 through 15. Who is Lydia? She's the first new Gentile believer on the continent of Europe. She's from the city of Thyatira, which I understand has a reputation for its trade in assorted dyes. And apparently, a very rare color at that time is purple. So it's, it's high-priced stuff. I mean, I thought of, I can't think of a high-priced store anymore because downtown has changed so much. <laughs> I mean, it, it used to be Dayton's. It used to be Saks Fifth Avenue. I don't know. So she sells uh, textiles that would be in, for sale at high prices. She's a seller of purple goods, and she's a businesswoman. And apparently her business is doing well because she has, she has a house, and she has a household, likely with children and servants. And she's a worshiper of God, and you know what that means. She's a, a Gentile who believes in the God of Israel. She's a Gentile who believes in the God of Israel and worships the God of Israel according to Old Testament law. And since there's no mention of her husband, you know, we just don't know. Is she 
widowed? Is she divorced? Is she abandoned? We, we don't know. Or is it just that her husband's around, he just doesn't get written into the story, maybe he didn't become a believer? We just don't know. But there's Lydia with her household. Uh, remember Paul's standard practice when he, when he pulled into a new city was to start first with the local synagogue. He's going to preach the gospel first to the Jews in the local synagogue. He gets to Philippi and discovers there is no synagogue. It's a Roman colony, and one uh, reference I, I, I saw was that Perhaps because of Jewish persecution, the majority of the Jews fled, and there's no functioning synagogue. So, so he knew where to go because when there was no synagogue, Jewish people would meet at the side of the river, and that's what he does, this place of prayer where a group of women were by the river to worship the God of Israel. So Paul, along with his team, this is verse 13, uh, we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So when Paul proclaimed the gospel to this little group of God-fearing women, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to hear and believe the gospel. <laughs> God is sovereign over the human heart, and God is sovereign over saving faith. This is, this is why we don't believe in forced conversions, you know. Conversion happens by the miracle of God opening a human heart to believe, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, and what happened? New birth, faith. It's a beautiful thing. It ought to humble all of us that this is how we were saved by the sovereign mercy of God opening our heart to believe in Jesus. And if you know, this is huge hope. If people you know and love don't believe in Jesus, this is great hope for church planting in places where there are very few believers, God is sovereign over the human heart. Remember the proverb, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it like a water course where he wills. So pray, pray for unbelievers that you know that God would open their hearts to believe the gospel of Christ and be saved. And, and join with us in this humble existence as a believer. Why do you believe? Because God had mercy on you and gave you grace to see Christ and believe his word when it was spoken to you. This is, this is glorious. This is glorious. I mean, it, no amount of manipulation is going to work repentance in, in our friends or family. No amount of outside in doesn't work that way. Saving faith is inside out. 
and it's beautiful. Lydia was baptized along with her household. And in a newfound gospel partnership, this is kind of what's amazing about this lady. Uh, This Gentile woman insists that Paul and his team stay with her in her house. She's, She's hospitable. And it seems that her house is the place where the first church of the Western world gathers. Yeah, I, it, church planters will say to me, like, well, you know, first of all, we got to get a place to meet. No, <laughs> no, no. God will take care of that. Get believers. Get a people gathering who believe. God will take care of that other stuff. Number two, the slave girl. Luke reports that as he and, and his team, or, and Paul's team were, were heading to the place of prayer, they're going to the river again and again to meet with these, these uh, Jewish women, these uh, Jewish worshiping women. Verse 16. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So who is she? She's, she's a, a girl. She's a slave. And so she's vulnerable. She's separated from home and family. She's not free. She's caught in a system of slavery such that the text says that she had slave owners. That really bristles me because the earth is the Lord's and everything belongs to him. So I kind of put quotes on owners. And she had an evil spirit. The phrase translated in the ESV as spirit of divination is literally a spirit of pythonness. Sounds kind of snaky, doesn't it? What's that mean? I mean, I read on this. I'm going to try to make it really simple, okay? It's Greek mythology. According to Greek mythology, this Greek, Greek god figure, Apollo, killed a massive snake called Python in a city called Delphi, and a temple was built there. And this, this was striking to me now. Now I'm reading from uh, Biblical Archaeology Review. For more than a millennium, more than a thousand years, people sought the prophecies of Apollo's famous oracle at Delphi, Pythia, a priestess at the temple, housed in an oracle, possessed with the spirit of the God who was able to see the future. So there's a little history on this. So this girl is possessed with a demon that has been operating for a thousand years to, call, to cause people to come to this place for fortune-telling. So the picture I get of this woman is she's, she's doubly enslaved. She has these slave owners and she's enslaved by a demon. And um, people would come to her slave owners and to her 
pay their slave owners money to get her services because they had fears about the future or they wanted to harm other people or put a curse on them or they wanted to have victory over others. And from what I read, there was a lot of fear around this kind of occult witchcraft. So she was like, for the slave owners, she was like an ATM machine. You know, they have her, they're taking her around, they're collecting money, she's saying what she says, and this is working for them. The spirit within her supernaturally and rightfully recognizes Paul and his team and starts crying out in verse 17. See it there? These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned to her and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. I, I, I wish my kids were in junior high again because of that word annoyed. <laughs> like, this is apostolic annoyance. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I liked it. These guys are servants of the Most High. I don't know why God put it in Paul's heart that after many days of that, to turn to her and say, this is the day. In the name of Jesus, done. But I love it. She's set free. You know, we, I love the phrase, it's from Pastor John, I think, Christians care about human suffering, especially about eternal suffering. We are not dead to the reality of human trafficking in our world today. We care. And as you know, human slavery exists in many forms and in the form of sex trafficking in particular continues. According to the U.S. State Department website, they have a statement. Human sex trafficking is a crime of exploitation. Traffickers profit at the expense of their victims by compelling them to perform labor or to engage in commercial sex in every region of the United States of America and around the world. With an estimated 249 million victims worldwide at any given time. Human traffickers prey on adults and children of all ages, backgrounds, nationalities, exploiting them for their profit. And I am so glad that Pastor Brad sent me this report from one of our global partners this week, working in a ministry called Destiny Rescue. And in their most recent report on rescues conducted in the first six months of this year on the border of Nepal, 
90% of which took place on the border of Nepal, so 10% took place elsewhere in the region around Nepal. Here's the stats. They saw 330 rescues at the border, largely at the border. Of those, 131 were children under 18. 135 were between 18 and 24, and 64 were 25 and older. Of all those, listen to this, 91% were rescued before abuse had been taken. Great ministry. About 90% of the time, the victims were deceived by traffickers with the promise of either a marriage, come with me, or a job, or both. 90% of the time. And as you can imagine, the ministry of rescue can be very dangerous work for the rescuers, which we're going to see in a minute. So the woman, the slave girl, was set free, set free from the demon of no use anymore to her slave masters. And, you know, it doesn't say, it doesn't say in the passage that she believed in Jesus. Though it seems likely to me that she would put her faith in the Jesus Christ who set her free. And it doesn't say to me, I mean, it doesn't say in the text that where she went. You know, I'm assuming she's far from home. Where do you think she went? My inference, Kenny's guesstimate, is she, well, she went to Lydia's house. She went to the church. Point number three, the slave owners. The slave masters, not surprisingly, were enraged. They had lost their prized slave. They lost their ATM machine. The money machine was gone. And in verse 19, describes the impact on the slave owners. This is very interestingly worded as a loss of hope. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. That's just such an interesting phrase. It just, it just screams that this is idolatrous. This is their hope. Money. Money, gain is their hope. They put their hope in it. Why do they use people? To get what they value. To get what they worship. Why do they get so angry when that, that, that means is taken away? Because their treasure, their idol has been taken away. Their, their game. It, it just, it's just a, a little uh, microcosm, a little parable of what idolatry looks like in the human heart. Our, 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 our idols cause us to use people and do things to get it. That are wicked. And when that's taken away, look out. Verse 19. No, I did that. Um, verse 20. So the angry slave master's head to the authorities with their accusations. Verse 20. 
These men are Jews and they are disrupting our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. That, that slave owners want rep- retribution, they want justice. Paul and his Christ have taken away their slave and her powers. They feel wronged, and so after making their case to the authorities, they spread their word to the crowd, which is quite predictable. It's a predictable way to escalate things, and as is elsewhere in the book of Acts, when the mob is engaged, the mob goes against the gospel and against the messengers of the gospel, just like the mob went against Christ on Good Friday. Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them, And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Apparently this was when foreigners were arrested. It was not uncommon to strip them naked and with a bundle of rods, like little sticks bundled up, beat them. Why beat them? Well, to get a confession out. Soften them up and humiliate them. Verse 23. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet with stocks. And so, as a result of doing good to this slave girl, Paul and Silas, beaten with rods, jailed, locked in stocks, so that they would be constantly in some measure of misery. You know, (laughs) think about being locked in stocks. Not, unable to move. You know, I don't know how many times you roll over in bed at night because it hurts. You know, if you don't move, it hurts. So, you know, they're, they're locked up doubly good. The jail, the stocks. And that's the last we hear of the slave owners. And they're out of the picture. But now, now the jailer, point number four. God's providential saving hand has been at work through all of this. When Paul and Silas are in the jail, things literally start shaking. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Wouldn't you love to know what they were singing? (laughs) They're praying and singing hymns to God, and the Prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And awakened the jailer, he, he, he determined that the quake had opened the doors, and, and assuming that the prisoners had left, he pulls out his sword in order to fall on it and kill himself. And, and, and Paul shouts out in verse 28, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. kind of prisoners are these, you know? The jailer hurries in, calls for the light, saw that it was true. Verse 29, he falls, uh, trembling with fear. He, He fell down before Paul and Silas. In verse 30, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household Sidebar, I just love how the gospel call is always, like, inclusive. 
like you and you and you and you and you, <laughs> you and your household. The promise is for you and your children and your children's children. Sense that here. And so it appears that the jailer said, well, it's for me and my household. Let's go. Let's go to my house. So it appears that from this text that that night they went to his house and his whole household believed. Uh, Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him, before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. There's more to the story. They go back to jail and, and they, that I'm not going there today. But there you go. Four main characters, three of which I'm seeing as recipients of God's grace in part of this initial beachhead of the gospel on the continent of Europe into the Western world. Several things are noteworthy in this passage. I've tried to touch on them. The, The partnership with Lydia, the sovereignty of God over salvation, the apostles' confrontation of Demons and the satanic world, the confronting of human slavery. But the one thing I want to dwell on is this. I I wonder if you were the Apostle Paul heading to the city of Philippi to plant the first church in Europe, what kind of people would you seek to gather? Now, clearly he wants to start with the synagogue. And and yet beyond that, would you say, you know, I need a, a bunch of rich people? Or would you say, I need a bunch of poor people? Or would you say, I need a bunch of influential people? Or middle class people? Or the educated? Or people that oppose the Roman government? Or people that work with the Roman What would you say? What kind of people would you want? Illustration. I tell this to all my church planting students have heard this. So forgive me if you're here. There was a planter. It's a true story. I'm changing some of the details. A planter who wanted to plant a church in an, in an area like the, the North Loop of Minneapolis. You know the North Loop. Really good restaurants. Uh, it used to be Skid Row when I was a child. It, it, it's, my mom used to call it Skid Row. That's what she called it. But anyway, um, lots of great restaurants and lots of, you know, people on Friday nights and Saturdays. And He wanted to plant a church in the North Loop. And he had in mind, I want to plant it for North Loop kind of people. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if you're familiar, probably not with this little phrase, Yavis. I learned this in college. Yavis. Yavis people. Yavis. Young, attractive, verbal, intelligent, successful. I want to plant a church for Yavis people in the North Loop. And, uh, set out to do that. And there's, there's I, I don't want to knock knowing the kind of people who are in a certain place and having them in mind when you go to a place. I don't want to knock that. That's just good missionary work. But I do want to make a point. 
So the planters started ministry and started building a core group and preaching the gospel and teaching the Bible and casting a vision. And uh, after six or nine months, he had gathered a people, a core group. The beginnings of a church had gathered. And it wasn't characterized by Yeva's people. It was characterized by the poor and the broken and the needy, the outcast. And you know what he did? He closed the church. Can you believe it? Now clearly, we know enough about cities to know that the three people that we've met in Philippi do not represent all the people in Philippi. But they do represent Philippi. And I, I just love it and enjoy it that God assembled in his providence by his gospel this core group. A Jewish apostle, a Timothy, half Jew, half Gentile, uh, Luke and Titus, Gentiles, joined with a wealthy, successful businesswoman with a house and a household and a husband who doesn't seem to be in the picture and a slave girl who had been exploited and enslaved while had held captive by a demon and a Roman jailer. I mean, this guy works for the Roman occupying government. I mean, people would see him as a traitor. Roman jailer. He works in an unjust justice system that brutalizes innocent people on slanderous charges to pacify a mob. What a collection. <laughs> and apparently, this is exactly the core of this church that God had in mind. Think about it, like, why? Because the gospel of Christ will go forward by a people, in a people, among a people, through a people who treasure Christ together above all else. Over Differences of background, differences of preferences, uh, race and ethnicity and socioeconomic. The gospel of Christ will go forward in and through a people who treasure Christ together above all else. You think, how, do, how does that work? He himself is our peace, Jesus, who has reconciled us both, us all, to God in one body, in Jesus Christ. You think, well, if you're going to build a church on us all, different as we are, being reconciled to God into one body, through one Jesus, isn't that going to be a lot of 
tension and conflict and differences and, and challenge. It would be so much easier if we could just all be the same. Right? Well, here's the deal. Christ receives greater glory when he is seen to be the treasure that he is. And the false, the the little things that might hold us together aren't ultimately what, they aren't ultimately what breaks us apart. Because the center of the treasuring of Christ together holds. Let me pray, and then we'll go to the Lord's table. Father in heaven, your word is good, and your gospel is good. We affirm Christ is our treasure. Above all else, above all other hope or dream or any, anything else, we worship you through Christ Jesus alone and give you praise for our salvation, for life, for everything in our lives. So glorify your Son among us as we worship him together here at the table. And I do pray that you'd show the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ in and among us, day in and day out, as we band together to treat one another with gospel integrity, gospel dynamics, as we love, forbear, and forgive one one another. And as we talk to one another and work out our differences and agreements and... In it all and through it all, may the glories of Christ, our treasure, be seen and known and go forth from here. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.